0: As we prepare now to talk about God's word and each of us have uh, an interaction with God about his call in our life this morning, I'd like to ask us to pray, prepare our hearts to talk with God. This is a prayer by Ted Loader. His book of prayer is called Gorillas of Grace. Let's pray. Oh God, let something essential and joyful happen in us now. Something like the blooming of hope and faith. Like a grateful heart. Like a surge of awareness of how precious each kingdom moment is. That now, not next time, now is the occasion to take off our shoes and to see the bush on fire. To lead and whirl with neighbor. To gulp the air as sweet wine until we've drunk enough to dare to speak the tender word. Thank you. We love you. You are beautiful. Let's live forever beginning now. And we are fools for Christ's sake. Amen. We begin this message with a quote from Sinclair Lewis. It goes like this. That's a quote from Paul. That's a quote from Paul. Sinclair Lewis. Do we have it? There we go. I think perhaps we want a more conscious life. We're tired of drudging and sleeping and dying. We're tired of seeing just a few people able to be individualists. We're tired of always deferring hope till the next generation. We're tired of hearing politicians and priests and cautious reformers coax us. Be calm. Wait. We have the plans for a utopia already made. Just wiser than you. For 10,000 years they've said that. We want our utopia now. And we're going to try our hands at it. Sinclair Lewis was the first American to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1930. But fame and fortune were not kind to Sinclair, and he died in 1951 alone in a clinic in Rome from complications of alcoholism. His body was cremated and the ashes were sent to the United States Embassy in Rome, awaiting shipment back to his family in the States. A visitor reported walking into the U.S. Embassy in Rome and seeing a woman down on her hands and knees with a dustpan and broom and an overturned funerary urn. And asked what she was doing, the woman replied nonchalantly, sweeping up Sinclair Lewis. Medical researchers tell us That at the moment of death, our body loses 21 grams of mass. That's five nickels or a hummingbird. Perhaps that's the weight of the human soul. But I think the more interesting question is not what a human soul weighs, but rather what gives weight to the human soul. What makes life matter? Now, As I look around the room this morning, I don't see, it could be, but I don't see anyone who's won the Nobel Prize for Literature. I don't see anyone whose picture has been on the cover of Sports Illustrated. I don't see any family in the room who's recently done a TED Talk about their new nonprofit they've started. If you'll forgive me, I look around the room and see a room full of ordinary people wondering if their life is really making a difference at all. I think the danger of asking the 21 gram question of what makes my life matter is dangerous because we tend to equate ordinary with insignificance and that would be a sweeping mistake. Welcome to first Corinthians. We began a new study. Uh, on this amazing book in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, Greece. And we're asking the question, what does a church plant from 51 AD in Corinth, Greece, have to teach us a rather sophisticated, though ordinary, church living in the suburbs of Denver in 2015 AD? Well, that is the question. And I believe as we answer that question, our lives are going to change and our church is going to change. And you say, Larry, you say that every time we begin a new series. Yes, but this time I really mean it. So let's dig in here's the idea i believe that a church even as messy and broken as first corinthians is called to carry the beauty of christ to our culture and in joining a group called to carry the beauty of christ there there we find the 21 grams of meaning for what we were created to do and that gives significance to life. Carrying the beauty of Christ to our world. But you say, Corinth though, what a broken church. And you are exactly right. Even the messy churches carry the beauty of Christ. But let's talk about the mess. How about it? A broken kind of beautiful. That's Corinth. So I want to talk about three different ways that Corinth showed how broken they were. They had issues with their pastors. They had issues with their culture. They had issues with one another. About their pastors, see, what Corinth thought was that they knew what it meant to be spiritual, but they were not so sure they knew Paul meant what it means to be spiritual. That Paul, whether Paul knows what he was talking about. very From the very first verse, 1-1, Paul is asserting his authority as an apostle because there's the rumblings of Corinth whereas Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. We can figure this out ourselves. What happened was that Paul and his missionary team, Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife team, and Silas and Timothy, together as a church planning team, they came into Corinth in around 51 A.D., during their second missionary journey, and they began uh, selling tents in the farmers markets around the city by morning and afternoon and evening, they began doing the work of planning a church, visiting with people, interacting with people, beginning to have studies groups, and uh, they planted a church over an 18 month period. They got things up and running well. So much so that they felt they could move on to the next stop in their journey, which was Ephesus. And so the team left, left it in good hands, called elders, the church was functioning. But it wasn't long, just a few months until they get word from a Corinthian family Uh, in verse 11 of chapter 1. It tells us it's the household of Chloe. And the report from the household of Chloe is that things more or less were beginning to fall apart. And then, a few months after that, Paul gets a letter from another family in the church. And basically, the letter is about this church is now having doctrinal issues and deep questions, as well as lifestyle choices that were interrupting the unity of the church, and it was on the verge of blow-up. And so what we have in 1 Corinthians, this letter we're going to read for the next several weeks, is Paul's response to Chloe's report and to this letter telling that things have drastically gone wrong in Corinth. What I want us to 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 hold on to, and we'll see this as we go, like in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, Paul basically says, look, if you don't start to figure these things out, when I come back and see you, I'm going to be in a not happy mood. So figure this out. And then in chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 9, Paul basically says, and he plays the apostle card, look, I've seen Jesus, you need to listen to me. He really begins to, you know, use some of the power and some of the calling that he had as an apostle. But the point for now is that Corinth was a church where they struggled with authority and apostolic leadership. And they were pushing back on the definition of what spiritual means. The second thing is Corinth had issues with this culture. Let's just talk about the city for a moment. It sat in a very strategic position on an isthmus that connected the greek mainland to the peloponnesian peninsula you can see where corinth sits now there was a and today there's a canal there but there was a paved road that cut from the gulf of corinth into the saronic gulf and uh if you had to sail around the rest of the, the the greek Peninsula there, it would, it would be six days of travel to get over to Italy and the deeper Mediterranean. So peop, ships would come into Corinth, they had this paved road and the latest transportation technology where they could actually unload the cargo and in some cases even the ship, put them on wheels and wagons and roll them four miles into the Saronic Gulf. And that would save lots of money. That would save you know, worth the trip to save six days of travel to come and do in a few hours uh, there at Corinth. So the, the main industries of Corinth were transportation and hospitality. And it was a very wealthy city. Oh, and one other thing about Corinth. It became, in the, the 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 zenith of the Roman Empire, one of the main areas where high-level politicians and Roman officers in the military would retire. And they would have their house on the beach there in Corinth Corinth became known as the the Florida of the Roman Empire and and all this money and wealth would retire there Uh, one of the great New Testament scholars of our time Gordon Fee he said that at once Corinth and this will give you a feel for the reputation the city had at once Corinth was New York Los Angeles with a touch of Vegas that was Corinth. Let's talk about the Vegas piece, shall we? There was in Corinth this this mount, 1,850 feet tall, called Acro-Corinth. And at the very base of Acro-Corinth there, in, in the city of Corinth, was a temple to the goddess of Aphrodite, who's the Greek goddess of love. There are the remnants of it. Scholars debate this, but uh, most of them seem to believe that on any given day, there was in this temple a thousand prostitutes ready to give you a religious experience. At the goddess of Aphrodite uh, there was also temples there um, to Poseidon and, and also Isis the seafarers goddess and there's also a temple to Asclepius who was the Greek god of healing and get this there was the at this temple the largest spa in the ancient world and the Greek god of healing so if anything was true in Rome it was that everything was true in Rome Pluralism. The only thing that was wrong in Rome was to say anything against Caesar and that any other religion was the only right religion. All goddesses and all worship was welcome. But speaking of entertainment, the other interesting thing about Corinth is that every other year they had the biennial Isthmus Games, which were second only in stature in athletics to the uh in Olympics in Athens, uh the other side of the country. So uh they had tourists going on there all the time and athletes living there and working out. It was a very, you know, uh Colorado Springsish Olympic Training Center kind of feel to Corinth, as well as um, they had this part of the city with a huge theater complex. In fact, the the seating of the the drama theater and the music theater sat 18,000 people at uh, this theater complex in Rome. They knew entertainment. I think the challenge that we see playing out in the book of Corinth is how as a Christian, with this new life of salvation in you, but yet this mission to engage the culture, how, how would you in, in, engage the culture as a new Christian, but yet still engage deeply with people whose gods were sex, entertainment, power, wealth, and pluralism? How did you do that? I mean, there was no question that there was a church in Corinth but the big question is how much of the Corinth was in the church. That was what they were wrestling with. So they had issues with their pastors. They had issues with their culture. And lastly, they had issues with one another. I mean, you read Corinth and it's just amazing some of the things that are going on in a church. I mean, the first three chapters are all of, that everybody had their pet pastor. And their domesticated doctrine. Uh, I like Nick. Nick. He's my pastor. I like Danielle. She's my pastor. I like Matt Chandler. He's my pastor. I like Tim Keller. He's my pastor. You know, everyone had their pastor pet. And their pastor pet was a better preacher than your pastor pet. And that determined a lot of the way they engaged church was by who their pastor pet was. They also had issues in chapter 5 where a man, a professing Christian, a member of the church, was sleeping with his stepmother. Hmm. Oh, that's going to be a great Sunday when we preach that chapter. Chapter 5. But Paul, you know, he just comes right out and says it. He says, look, what is happening in this church? Even the pagans are revolted by it. Chapter 6. Uh, it seems that some in the church were sleeping with prostitutes. Chapter 7, some in the church were saying the only way to handle your sexuality is to be celibate. Chapter 8, there's this whole discussion about can we buy from the farmer's market meat that's been offered in the other temples around the city. Chapter 9 and 10, the role of women in the church. The, the ten, the the and the, eleven, the communion. The, there seems there was cliques where the rich were keeping to their side of the house, and the poor were keeping to their side of the house, and even at the Lord's supper they didn't come together. Uh, and then in chapters twelve through fourteen, all this stuff about the use of the spiritual gifts in a public worship sermon people were competing and being rude and self only interested in self-expression and they were trying to say i've got more god with my gift than you've got with your gift and then you get to chapter 15 and they're just wondering about the resurrection and how this is all going to end it was a messy church they had issues a lot going on i just want to step out of that for a minute And as you look at the book in a whole and where we're going the next few weeks, Paul handles this in two very interesting ways, which is always, I think, good counsel for us as problems will come to Waterstone. The first thing Paul does is he writes in this letter and he gives them sound teaching. Good doctrine. This is the apostles' teaching. You know, the 21 grams of weight that every church needs is the apostles' teaching. The main question to measure whether your church is healthy is how much Bible. Is in the church. Jesus rules his church through the word. How much Bible do you have in this church? That's the question. But uh, for Paul, there's some doctrinal fix. And there's right thinking leads to right behavior. But it's not just that. The other part of Corinthian is Paul's going for what's under that as well. He's going for the heart issue, the desire issue. Every human being has something that they feel gives their life meaning, something that's captured their imagination, something that gives hope to their heart. And oftentimes that's Jesus and that's a, that's it. That's great. He is the beauty that meets the needs of our heart, the deep yearnings. But other times, it's not Jesus. Other times, it's sometimes wrong things that we set our hearts on that we think we need. And get this, sometimes it's good things that aren't Jesus that we set our hearts and our desires on and we make them into ultimate things and want them to be God to us and answer the deep yearnings in our heart. Paul understands that much of this is about desires. It's James in the in the in the uh, Jerusalem Church in James chapter four. The Jerusalem Church was having their fights, and James finally says in exasperation, "Where do these fights and quarrels in the church come from?" And then he answers this question: They come from our desires that are not met, and therefore we murder and we covet. It's unmet desires, and we try to choose everything else but Jesus to meet those desires, and then our desires are in conflict with the desires of the church and the holy community. That's where a lot of this mess comes from. The best description of the Church of Corinth and how this plays out, I've heard, was from an interesting source, an atheist who recently took his own life a few years ago, but one of the great novelists of our time named David Foster Wallace. Here's the description of Corinth. He's speaking here to a graduating college class at Kenyon College, and I believe it's in Great Britain. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship Is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. That's Corinth. That's the mess. That's Waterstone. A broken kind of beautiful. So, you think about what's going on in Corinth. You're anticipating Paul's response and he's just going to come in and start pounding and he's going to get this church back on the rails, right? Pound, pound. What's so interesting is how pastoral Paul is. And the way he begins to address the situation in Corinth is by a crystal clear vision of what the church is. A beautiful vessel that carries the beautiful Savior. I love how Paul starts off Corinthians. And we're going to see as this vision of the church three things. First, we're going to understand in verses uh, two, 1, 2, 3, that... The beauty of the church is that it is called to be holy. Paul sees the church as called to be holy. Look at just the second verse there. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be His holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Notice where Paul begins by addressing what the church at Corinth is. That it is a called out church of God That is called to be holy. I want to talk about that word church. In the Greek, it's the word ekklesia. It comes from two Greek words, ek, which means out of, and kaleo, which means called. So every time you and I say the word church, you are not talking about bricks and mortar, about programs, or about pastors. You are talking, when you say that word, about God's activity where He calls out a group of people, shows them His Son, and says, This is My beloved Son. Hear Him. And then He sends the Holy Spirit into that group to carry the mission of being the beauty, the aroma of Christ, in a culture that's dying around us. Do you see that you are a called-out group, Waterstone? You are the activity of God. You are the people He's shown His Son to and then put His Spirit into and then says, Go, take that beauty to our world. I want to just camp on one implication of that for just a second. I want us to realize that at the moment, actually be reminded, the moment we become a Christian and say, Jesus is Lord, at that moment we take on brothers and sisters right? Your Christianity can be very personal. It can be intimate, but it can never be private. A person can be a Christian and not be part of a church no more than a person can be human and not be part of a family. You are a part of of the called out group. Following Jesus is a corporate experience. You are grouped, whether you like it or not. You have brothers and sisters. Why? Well, it's interesting. Remember those desires we talked about earlier? I mean, much of our culture is about, you know, our individual expression, which leads to the isolation. And when we're isolated and kept to ourselves, you know, we can have whatever desires we have and they can play out and basically we can ruin our lives. But when you get into a group like this, and by the way, I'd like to remind people, it's this vision of Jesus and His Spirit in you that makes you different than the Elks Club. Different than the political parties. Different than any other kind of gathering on the face of the planet. You are God's called-out group. And God puts you into that group. Why? Primarily for desire control and desire collision. To help you understand that you don't run the world, nor should you. (laughs) That, That you are accountable to a group God's called out group. He puts you in a group and lets your desires have collisions with every other's desires in order to grow you. One of the things I need to always plead with you to do is to keep God's picture of the church, this picture in Corinthians, keep this picture of the church, His ideal, rather than your experience of the church. If you can hold on to what God wants to do with the church and why He's put you in it to grow, and why He's put you in it to grow, in order for you to learn to practice forgiveness instead of being right all the time. He's put you into this church to practice love instead of feeling loved he 's put you into this church to to, 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 to sharpen you and to, to iron off the rough parts of your desiring heart, if you can hold on to god 's purpose and his ideal of the church instead of your experience of the church, and, and if you 'll forgive me, but sometimes your experience in the church is going to be crappy. The church is known for dishing out servings of hurt, and we 're not nice about it and The fleas come with a dog. But if you hold on to the ideal and what God's trying to do, it will help you weather the storms of when the church breaks your heart and hurts you. Hold on to God's vision of the church as we see it played out here. So let me ask you this. Are you you committed to the church? Are you dating the church? Or have you married? You know, Someone asks you, yeah, I go, to, I go to Waterstone. You know, it's that church over there on Bowles and Elkire. Oh, across from Tipsy's. Am I married to that church? Oh, no. No, I mean, they are some kind of clingy. I mean, they, they're always asking me to come for three hours on a Sunday morning and worship one hour and then invest in our kids for, for one hour like you think they're the next generation and the, you, you save these kids they're, they're always uh, pushing me to get into a small group. They're like trying to take away my anonymity. They want me to, to be known. And they want me to share my stuff with other people. And, and they want me to know other people and handle their stuff. And then, hold on to your wallet, they're always asking me for money. As if they think, you know, I'm hung up on money and security and spending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you dating the church? Or have you married? Have you committed to join this body and practice the three rhythms of transformation, growing in Christ, getting into a small group, getting into a Bible study, men's, women's? Have you committed to neighboring, being the aroma of Christ to a culture of death, knowing your neighbors, praying for them, practicing hospitality with them? Have you committed to getting involved in ministry? The restore rhythm, where you give your money away to the poor, where you show up for poor people when no one else will. Have you married Jesus who wants to marry you? That's what I'm asking you. How's your church life? Dating or committed? The other interesting thing here is so that that Paul says you're a called out group and then he takes it further and says you are sanctified, set apart to be holy. You're a called out group to be holy so that the world sees that we're holy. Well, what does that mean? Well, The word holy is taken from temple language. It was used to describe the utensils and the furniture in the temple. And when it says that they are holy, it means that they shouldn't be used anywhere else. Not in your backyard barbecues. Not in even the church kitchen. They should only be used for the temple worship. The, The robes of Aaron, the priests themselves. They are holy unto the Lord. It means to be set apart for God's use. It literally means To belong to God. Like when you're drafted by an NFL team, you put on their jersey, you take on their values, you belong to that team. God has drafted you. And you are holy. Set apart for His use. I was thinking about this, uh, how to illustrate and make this concrete. I mean, I, I was thinking about what's holy in our house. You know, the most holy thing in our house that has a distinct, unique purpose that is never used for anything else is our dog Honest's dog dish. No one ever eats from that dish except onyx. That dish is holy unto dog. In the same way, you are holy unto God and set apart for His use. And that's why being set apart for His use, the use is to carry the beauty of Jesus to a dying culture. That's why in these nine verses, count them, there are ten references to Jesus Christ by name. In other words, what does it mean to be holy as a Christian? It means to belong to Jesus Christ ten times over. You belong to Jesus. You live His values. You're on His mission. You're in the march with the King. You belong to Jesus ten times. That's what it means to be holy holy. And so, you take that out into the culture and you say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord, not sex. Jesus is Lord, not wealth. Jesus is Lord, not comfort. Jesus is Lord, not power. Jesus is Lord, not plurality. Jesus is Lord. That's what it means to be holy. Now, people I've seen checking out Christianity. Some of you here checking it out. You get into it and you start reading the Bible. You start hearing these kinds of messages. And you think, man, man, if if that's true, then the Bible is asking me to do certain things, like maybe engage the poor. And the Bible is asking me for my own good not to engage in certain things, like maybe not having sex outside of marriage. I just don't know if I can do that. And I see people bringing all these conditions to place on their faith and their relationship with God. And what I want to say is, look, you're not getting it. Here's what this means, holy unto the Lord, to belong to Jesus. It means that there's a God who is the source of all holiness and beauty and glory and life. And this God has sent into the world His Son, who wants to have relationship with us and bring into our life goodness and power and healing. Enjoy. he brings that into our life and at the same time that's the now he promises us a future an endless future with him forever in heaven but now he's coming more and more alive in us every day and when you understand that how could you ever ask the question well i'm not sure that i want to give him this part of my life or i'm not sure i want to give him that part of my life Tim Keller, he has this great illustration, he illustrates it this way, he said, let's say you have a friend, and this friend has a terrible disease, and this friend's dying, so you take him into the hospital, and they meets the doctor, they talk, does an examination, and the doctor says, look, I have a remedy for you that can cure you, and it can give you long, fruitful life. But then the doctor continues and says, but the, the only hitch is, when you take this remedy, you have to give up Chocolate. Your friend looks at you after hearing that diagnosis and says, chocolate, forget it. What's the use of living? That's what it means to proclaim Jesus as Lord, but to want to hold on to those desires. How can we ever ask that question? I can't give up this. I can't give up that. If Jesus is Lord and all he's done for you, it means when you say Jesus is Lord that wherever God's will intersects with your life, your response is understanding who God is and what he's done and the beauty, your response is, How will I obey? How will I obey? And everything in your life comes into constellation around Jesus and everything in your life is reordered and restructured why because we are called out to be holy unto God Jesus is Lord the second vision of the church it's a collection of people who've proclaimed Jesus as Lord giving every part of their lives up to him but the second thing it means to be the vision of church and carry the beauty of Christ to get significance in our life is to understand that we as a church have been given spiritual gifts. Look at verses 4-7. through 7. We see, how can Paul be thankful for a Corinthian church that has all this trouble in it? Here's how. I always thank my God for you because of His grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. God can can lift the the church up because He understands they've been gifted for mission. In fact, He calls out two of their spiritual gifts. He says they have speech, which is they had really great preaching at Corinth, really great worship at Corinth, and knowledge, which means they really had an understanding, words of insight and knowledge. They were really good at helping people with guidance at Corinthians. The problem is they just started using these... Gifts for their own purposes and to make themselves feel better. But Paul is acknowledging and being thankful that this church has every spiritual gift it needs to do something glorious for Jesus. Now, briefly, what's a spiritual? A spiritual gift is like a quiet superpower that every Christian has where you can do something to build up the body in a way that Jesus would have done it. You have that power. Now, it's more than physical talents. It's a a talent that comes from the soul that can use physical talents to accomplish growth in the body. So let me illustrate it. That I know of, I've not read in Scripture anywhere, snorkeling is not a spiritual gift. You know? But, let's say you have a spiritual gift of teaching. Or mentoring or helping other believers understand more of who Jesus is and more about the Bible. That's a spiritual gift. So you could use your physical talent of snorkeling to take the, the pastoral staff from Waterstone, no, no anyone from Waterstone uh, on a snorkeling trip and pour your life into them and teach them about Jesus. I mean, that I know of, hanging drywall is not a spiritual gift. But you might have the spiritual gift of mercy, which draws you downtown Denver to open-door ministries where our church goes every month and serve the poor down there because you have compassion for people who are struggling and you can use your physical talents because you have the gift of mercy. I mean, there's all kinds of give Mercy, teaching, discernment, guidance, speaking, preaching, you know, all kind Administration, uh, there's... Four different places. And when we get to 1 Corinthians 12, we'll unpack this much more. But it's a supernatural pull to use your life and gifts to help build up the body to carry the beauty of Jesus to the world. So two quick things. Implication one is Paul's saying that Corinth has all they need to do what they need to do in Corinth. The same would be true of Waterstone. We have all we need right now in this moment to do the things we need to do to be the aroma of Christ to a dying culture and give our lives significance. We have what we need. We have all the colors we need to paint on the canvas. God has gifted Waterstone to do what we need to do. But the second part of that is we need all the colors in the palette. We need you. Are you engaged in some form of serving and ministry? It could be on your job. It could be here at the church. Whatever. Are you engaged in helping us paint the canvas that God's calling water stone? Do we have your color in our canvas? Let me change the metaphor. In the medieval church, it's a great picture. They always used to build the great cathedrals near a riverbed or a stone quarry. Why? Because what they literally did to to build these churches was form a human line from the riverbed to the church walls and they would pass the stone one person to the next. Stone after stone after stone. Is how they would build these great cathedrals. We need you in line. We need you in our line. Have you engaged in some form of serving and ministry here where you're helping us build the walls to equip a church to take the beauty of Jesus to a dying culture? We need you. You ask, Wow, Larry, I don't know about my spiritual gift. I don't know how to get involved. Can I just give you some very practical application here? This is what I like to tell people who ask me that. Just jump in. Do something get involved in something that you might even remotely be interested in and you will gravitate toward your spiritual gifts people will tell you hey you're pretty good at that or you know some hey maybe that's not your spiritual gift <laughs> you know <laughs> but get involved and you will gravitate toward where you make the most impact and can i make one further suggestion where we The best way to get involved, the most volunteer-driven part of Waterstone is our children's ministry. And by the way, Jesus said, if you really want to understand the kingdom of God and figure out what heaven and life with Jesus, you know what Jesus would do? He'd sit a kid on His knee. Here's the kingdom. Look at their imagination. Look at their joy. Look at their vibrancy for life. Here's the kingdom. You want to know what kingdom's like? Boom. If you don't know where to jump in and you're not jumped in, Get involved in our children's ministry. You can volunteer for once a month. You can get involved in our VBS program. Uh, there are a hundred ways to get involved with our children's ministry. Jump in there. You'll gravitate towards your gifts. Don't give me any of this smuck about, you know, I've raised my kids and I'm not good with kids. I don't care. You need to get involved. And it's not about you anyhow. It's about serving. And making an impact on the next generation. Okay, off my hobby horse on that. Um, spiritual gifts. So Paul's saying it's a called out group to belong to Jesus. It is a gifted group for mission. But lastly, he says, it is a promised group that it, it has this faithfulness of God attached to it. Strong and faithful. Look at verses 8 and 9. Again, this is Paul's vision for the Corinthian church with all of its problems. He says about the church, He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see those words? Those are, They jump off the page. Here's a church that's a mess, but God sees them as blameless. He sees them as already in heaven. Already fully formed follower of Jesus. In heaven. He sees them as firm in His... because The church is God's responsibility, not ours. This is God's activity. God's work. In other words, what Paul is doing is calling the Corinthian church to see that no matter how bad it gets, you're not home yet. No matter how bad the church gets... You and the church are works in progress. And if you can keep the scent and the smell of home in front of you, and remember that you're not home yet, it will be vision enough to help you hang in there when things are rough in the now. There's the already. We live in the not yet. But Paul's saying, hold on to the future. In the now, the scent and smell of home help you endure hold on to God's idea of the church not your experience God wants you to always have the future in front of you I like the way Dallas Willard he put it this way in uh, the divine conspiracy I meet many faithful Christians who in spite of their faith are deeply disappointed in how their lives have turned out sometimes it is simply a matter of how they experience aging which they take to mean they no longer have a future, but often due to circumstances or wrongful decisions and actions by others, what they had hoped to accomplish in this life, they did not. They painfully puzzle over what they may have done wrong or over whether God has really been with them. Much of the distress of these good people comes from a failure to realize that their life lies before them. That they are coming, that they are coming to the end of their present life. Life in the flesh is of little significance. What is of significance is the kind of person they have become. Circumstances and other people are not in control of an individual's character or of the life that lies endlessly before us in the kingdom of God. Hold on to home. As you live in a church. And it will help you get there. One of my favorite heroes, one of my heroes, favorite preachers is a man named Justin Martyr who lived in the second century, just two generations away from the apostles. But he lived in Galilee where Jesus grew up. He lived in northern Israel. And Justin Martyr claimed during his ministry that he knew of farmers in Galilee who were still using plows that Jesus made. Good work, Jesus. But I would submit to you that Jesus' best work is sitting right here. You, called to be holy, Jesus' Lord. You, rich in spiritual gifts, helping us to be the aroma of Christ in a dying culture. You, people with vision, always for home, not yet, but on way. We can hold on. You. Our Jesus' best work. What do you? That's good, right? Is that good? (laughs) That's good. That's good. So, as we close, we're going to end in a in a different sort of way this morning. We're going to still sing a song in a moment, and then we have a couple of announcements at the end. Very important aroma announcements. But right now, I want us to stand and practice an ancient church. Uh, tradition i want you to stand and share the peace with one another say to one another the peace of the lord be with you say it back and then say in response to the message and you look marvelous today let's do that (laughs) together